Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake gold. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about intimacy, intimacy of relationship, thought, and action. I've been thinking about nature, fig trees, flowers, bees, and grass. And I've been thinking about the circles we draw around ourselves, and that the question isn't about how big those circles are, but about how we relate to what's inside. My guest today is Marta McDowell. Her new book, Emily Dickinson's Gardening Life, The Plants That Inspired the Iconic Poet, is inspiration for our conversation. Marta is the author of Beatrix Potter's Gardening Life, The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder, and All the President's Gardens. In 2018, Marta was the Emily Dickinson Museum's gardener in residence and the 2019 winner of the Garden Club of America's Award for Outstanding Literary Achievement. Welcome back, Marta, and thank you so much for joining us again on That Got Me Thinking. Thank you, Ellie. And thank you for your beautiful book, uh, Inside and Out. The, the pictures are beautiful, the writing's amazing, the research, and for getting us thinking about poetry and gardening, things I think we don't always think about, uh, most of us, and Emily Dickinson's life, and, and then our own in, in um, relation. It's a great time of year to be thinking about these things, too. Well, and that was something I noticed right away. So the gardener's year starts at a different time, it seems, than um, the rest of society. I think we usually think of the beginning of the year as fall. That's not so for the gardener, right? No, I always think in the garden, spring is the time of the new awakening. Yeah, so the book starts through a year of gardening and starts with early spring, um, which is different from late spring, I have now learned. And, um, and, and Emily Dickinson, the thing I appreciate most about um, your writing in the book was that she didn't appreciate just the beauty of nature, that she had very complex and deep relationships with uh, variety, and I'd say most of the aspects of nature. Did you find that to be true while you were doing your research? Yes, yeah, so I was initially intrigued because I was always a gardener, and I found out that Emily Dickinson was a gardener. But when I started reading her poems and letters thoroughly, I realized that it wasn't just gardening, you know, not just horticulture in the sense that, you know, you pick up a shovel or a trowel and start to work, but also going out into nature. So she did a lot of walking, especially when she was younger. She did a lot of wildflower walks and collected plants from, you know, all different kind of sorts of places around her home in Massachusetts. So, you know, things that were from a more mountainous areas, things that were from the suburbs. And she writes about all of these things and really all of the seasons. And it reminded me her walks of sort of Huck Finn. She didn't just sort of go out on these genteel walks. She went on on robust adventures, you know, to really seek out nature and, and explore and get dirty in the mud, which wasn't, you know, a typical activity for girls at her time in the 1880s or 60s. That's right. She, she said she was always attached to mud, right? Isn't that a wonderful you know, kind of image. We think of Emily Dickinson in this white dress looking kind of pristine and definitely indoors, right? You don't think of Emily Dickinson as an outdoorsy kind of person, <laughs> but she really did 
get dirty. You know, I don't know if she gardened in a white dress, but she certainly knew about mud and soil and seeds and roots. <laughs> well, and she talks about sort of setting off and that she had, you know, a hundred different little types of warnings from her mother to be careful. Um, but then her father instead just gets her a big dog to be her protector and her companion. I know. Isn't that a wonderful thing? to the dog as large as myself that my father bought me. You know, we don't know exactly what kind of dog Carlo was. A lot of people say a Newfoundland dog. Some people say a St. Bernard. But, you know, you kind of get the idea of the scale of this dog. This was not a lap dog. And she just, she loved Carlo. He was, you know, sort of one of her key companions. She says they are better than beings because they know but do not tell. And and you can just feel uh, through your writing that, that just the deep love she has for Carlo. And also her wild spirit as far as um, her brother lives next door. And, and she goes over there when she's a little bit older. And uh, you talk about her father going to pick her up with the lantern. But she as soon as he gets there, she sort of escapes and, and races home, you know, on her own in the dark. Yeah, and I also, I love the image of her playing the piano. And, and someone remembered her at her brother's playing the piano with kind of this wild improvisation, you know, not this sort of, you know, genteel, last rose of summer kind of tune, but really something kind of eerie and otherworldly. Yes, yeah, she's not demure. And I think that's, no. that's the impression that we get. Um, and also, I think one thing that's wonderful that, that you point out is that the, the, the time that we are in history when Emily Dickinson is alive and the, the role for women, but also the role in science and the role uh, of nature is very different. And the, the combination of the two, the appreciation, appreciation of nature, but also the beginnings of the scientific study of that. And, and she was definitely engaged with that um, by creating an herbatorium and then actually studying botany. What did you learn about those aspects of her life? That's right. So Emily Dickinson lived from 1830 to 1886. So I think, you know, her life spans the Civil War, but it's entirely contained in the 19th century. Uh, The idea of women studying science was really relatively new, but it was something that was already acceptable, you know, especially botany. It seems like, you know, the study of botany was considered sort of appropriate for women because the flowers were beautiful and delicate. And so it it gave women kind of a way in to being serious about looking at uh, natural phenomena in a very careful way. So she studies botany in school, in high school, and then she attends Mount Holyoke College for a year as well. And she starts to put together this collection that was a fairly popular thing for young girls to do in those days. And it's called a herbarium. And a herbarium is a collection of pressed plants that are kind of analyzed, if you will, and labeled. So her collection is in an album, sort of a ready-made album that was designed for this. And there are 66 pages and they're just crammed with these pressed flowers that are labeled with a scientific name. And then she also annotates them with the number of 
pistils and stamens, so the number of female and male parts in the flower, which was the way they classified them in those days. So you can think of her, you know, again, very carefully assembling this by picking flowers in her garden and also by going out into the fields and woods and swamps and collecting these and then pressing them and arranging them. I loved the the um, gal, I think her name was Lincoln, who wrote, the objects of its investigation are beautiful and delicate. Its pursuit leading to exercise in the open air is conducive to health and cheerfulness. That botany was an occupation that was considered genteel enough for women in the 1800s. That's right. But nowadays, people are talking about, oh, you know, we need to go out into nature. We need to go out into, you know, kind of the prairie and the forest and, and kind of get that um, infusion of the natural world. And it's really healthy. So in a way, Mrs. Lincoln was really ahead of her time. She was. And, and that was the other thing that struck me so was such a different level of connection um, to one another, um, being involved in, in one another's lives, your friends and family that you were close to at such a deep level. Um, and, and then with nature, and I'm thinking of the letter she writes to her brother Austin to ease his worry about a newly planted tree. I thought that just so encapsulated those two connections and she says I take good care of the tree give it a pail of water every day and certainly it looks stouter and we all think it will live and so just that like they were taking care of it but they were also obviously all discussing it and all thinking good thoughts um and this was about a tree you know such a connection to place and and one another and it's it's so interesting Ellie because if you go today to what's called the Emily Dickinson Museum. It includes both her home and her brother's home next door. And the oldest plants on the property are the trees that her brother planted. There's a big oak tree, there's a ginkgo, there are some magnolias that her brother planted and and then rhododendrons and things. But, you know, that care that was lavished on these things now more than a hundred years ago really paid off in you know what's what's left to us as living history well and i think just as human beings it much must have given them some such a sense of connection to one another connection to the earth um being able to i mean as a guard a master gardener you know to grow something um to be connected to to something living and to foster it along and also it's the period that that whole transcendental movement emerges where suddenly people like emerson and thoreau are writing about how you can that nature can have a sort of religious significance as well, that it can take you beyond yourself so that you have a a connection to the whole world. And I think that Dickinson had a way of doing that too, that she takes sometimes very simple things and she distills them down into poetry with so much punch that it seems to really explode on the page well and uh, oh go ahead it's no wonder that you know when these were finally published that they made such an impression on people and let's talk about that a little bit why they were not um published during her 
her life much. I mean, it was just a tiny bit. She makes a comment about, I was just looking for it, about sort of what she thinks. Oh, publication is the auction of the mind of man. Um, so so we're not sure, you know, she had some different thoughts on it. But um, what, what was your interpretation of why more of her poems weren't published while she was alive? It's interesting, especially because she was in in a very literary circle. She was in close contact with several really important editors of her day and who were quite aware that she was writing poems. Uh, One of them, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, did not encourage her to publish because he thought that her poems were too unusual. You know, they were too irregular. Uh, others wanted her to publish, but she was, you know, she didn't want to be edited. You know, she thought that was pruning and she wasn't quite so sure about how she felt about other people pruning her work. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I think that combination of things led her not to publish again, except for this handful, about a dozen were published during her lifetime. And it really isn't clear whether they were published you know, entirely with her knowledge and permission or not. And so it's not until four years after her death that the first collection of her poems comes out, and it's immediately popular. Now, maybe the time was more right. You know, maybe the world had caught up in some respects to Emily Dickinson's level of thought. Um, You know, but in another way, I think she found her own place. It was as if she were, I don't know, like a blogger or something, and she found her own audience. So she did share them with people. You know, when she felt someone was deserving, she would send them a poem and maybe sometimes some flowers as well. So, you know, she often mixed those two things up. And, uh, you know, again, if you compare her poems to someone like, Oh, like Whittier or Emerson, for example, or even Helen Hunt Jackson was another friend of hers. And, you know, I remember my mother quoting Helen Hunt Jackson. She had a poem that starts, the goldenrod is yellow about September. You know, it's it's a very lovely standard little poem. But then you read one of Dickinson's poems, like uh, the name of it is autumn. The hue of it is blood. You know, it's, it's not about like nice little goldenrod. It's it's very intense. <laughs> so I think that was part of it. It's funny when you talk about her giving the flowers and poems to be met. It's almost like this little fairy that is, fairy's not like a nymph maybe, that's kind of floats in and out and, and, and sometimes in secrecy and sometimes right out. But I remember there's a scene you talk about a luncheon where the author of The Secret Garden is at her brother's house and she receives, says she receives a strange and wonderful little poem nestled on a bed of heart's ease presented in a bowl. Um, and, and that, as you said, Emily was always sending along poems and uh, little gifts of flowers or something else to uh, her family and her friends and then other writers. So she had this whole very active life, even once she stopped going out, that was um, utilizing her garden and her writing craft to interact with people she knew, but then also other writers. As you said, at the time, there were so many fabulous writers, and she would write a poem or something that was in reaction maybe to something she'd read from one of them. Yes, and I think that, you know, she had this need for creative space that she 
seemed to really um, defend. And so some of it, I think, some of her reclusiveness, I think, was giving herself space to work and to, to think. You know, she once said something, it almost sounds derogatory about her mother. You know, my mother has like kind of no time to think. Um, so she she did defend that. And, and so to some degree, I think that she just needed her own room for her own genius to really have the space to come out. Because she's very social earlier on, and she's traveling quite a bit. She talks about once traveling to her cousins and um, deciding whether or not to bring some of her plants and deciding it was too cold, but then that the cousins' plants were growing so well and that they had commented that they felt it was her energy that was helping them along. And, and she writes a letter to her to her brother, I think, telling her, Lavinia, her sister, about that. Um, what do you think especially changed in her later years? And she writes, but I do not cross my father's ground for any house or town. So so there's a, a definitive point where things shift. So no one really knows. I suspect that it was a combination of things. She, her, she lost her father. Her mother got quite ill. And so she and her sister nurse her mother at home for quite a number of years. And then Dickinson herself starts to have severe eye trouble. And, you know, you can imagine for someone who was so visual, right? Her, her world is words and reading and writing and gardening and baking, you know, that this would have been something really uh, striking, you know, a striking change. And that that might also have, you know, sort of led her to more of an inner world and to really trying to protect her personal space. And then, you know, it could have been something psychological as well. No one really knows. But she certainly did still keep up a correspondence that was voluminous. So there's a recent book that a Dickinson scholar wrote called The Networked Recluse. Right. Yes, she was reclusive, but not in the way that we think of someone not in touch. Well, because she still helps out with the social events that her family puts on, she's still very engaged with her community of family and friends. I love the story you tell of her interactions with her nieces and nephews and how she sort of thought they thought of... Um, Peter Pan and, and the Wild Boys, you know, the, the whole town, they're sort of exchanging, you know, I see her there in her pirate garb, um, playing with them in the yard and that they, she lowers down a, a basket filled with treats for them and they put in special flowers and things that they notice to send up to her. She's not a recluse, as you say, in the, in the sense that I think, um, she has been, uh, framed as. Yes, you know, I remember my mother in later life not really going out as much in society. I think to some degree, she started feeling like she was running out of time and there were so many things she hadn't read. <laughs> My mother was always a great reader. <laughs> and so, you know, people have different reasons for sort of withdrawing from society. It's like, I don't know, if you have a friend or a family member who stops posting on Facebook, you think, well, what's the matter? But then you know, you think, well, you know, maybe they just want more space for their own thoughts. 
Well, and she's so connected to everything else going on in her life that it makes sense that she doesn't want those distractions that don't matter to her. As as you said with your mom, you know, she knew what her priorities and her values were, and she didn't want to be pulled away from them. Um, From the time she's a child, she sees the connection and experiences the connection so clearly of heaven to earth. And she writes about it in her poem of the poppy and the sun. Um, And she talks about, uh, you mentioned her religion, she talks about her religion being in nature, and that the only... element that that of the commandments that she abides by is um oh what is it something you know adoring the lily or or caring for the lily yes consider considering the lily. the lily consider the lily yes i mean some of what she writes is modestly heretical right depending on your point of view so she had her her own way of looking at religion, but I would not say that she wasn't religious. I think she was deeply religious, but had her own way of um, sort of approaching God and approaching infinity. She, she's using all of her senses, right? Her, her eyes, her ears, her heart's open. Um, she writes at one point, instead of getting to heaven, in one of her poems, instead of getting to heaven at last, I'm going all along, um, is the last line of one of her poems. And you can feel that to be true through, through your writing, as you, 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 you explain you know, the way she's living her, her life. So she, she once writes, some keep the Sabbath going to church. I keep the Sabbath at home. And, you know, she's talking about the orchard. And, you know, this is this is her church, is the orchard. And she certainly grew up church. She knew her Bible well. There are biblical references throughout her poems and letters. Uh, but this is, this is where she ended up. After the publication of her poems in, in 1890s, a Boston newspaper reviewer speaks of the real reverence that underlies the most, and I like to use the word he used, startling of her utterances. Startle, startling utterances is what her poems are seen as then. Um, so I, I, that made me think two things. One, as we're talking about her, her reverence and, and how it comes out, but why were her utterances so startling? Um, you know, I think that's really her genius. So, uh, you know, now when I, I think of something so as simple as, you know, oh, going to have a very, very cold snap coming up this weekend. And so I've got to run around and finish up the things that I have to do in the garden to prepare the garden for winter. And so I'm thinking, oh, I'm, you know, it's going to get really cold. I have to bring my plants in. Well, in one of her letters, she writes to a friend, my plants went into camp last night their tender armor insufficient right it's a poem in itself Mm -hmm. just that thought you know that is uh, a simple thought but she either these these ideas come to her sort of fully clothed or she really works on them on a way to say them in a very unique way my plants went into camp last night you know is she talking about like an army camp or is she talking about kind of a you know a day camp but it, it's a really vivid image well and throughout you get the sense she's of her intellect and her wit and her humor um you, you talk about at points where she um mimics and you fill it with a warm jest some of the writers of the day and, and one was robert burns and the morning glory 
That's right. So she she uh, does a poem sort of in Robert Burns Scottish style, and um, you know, if I had one wish, Ellie, it would be could I be for a few months the correspondent of Emily Dickinson, but it would take so much of my time because I you know I'd have to really really work on my letters to, you know, have the prayer of being up to her very high standards. Oh, but wouldn't it be worth it then to get her letters and the the little gifts of flowers and to see which flowers she picks, you know, for you? Absolutely. And, you know, the really sad thing in the world of people who study Emily Dickinson is that when Dickinson died in 1886, she instructed her sister to burn all of her papers. So, and that's exactly what Lavinia Dickinson does. She goes into her sister's chest, you know, her her chest of drawers in her room, and she takes out all of the letters that Emily Dickinson had received and saved during her lifetime and burns them. And so they're all gone. Uh, But thank goodness she didn't burn the poem. Right, because she finds them a little bit later, right? And I think it was, she so much wanted to honor... Her, the instructions and and so this was something she probably thought ah oh, we've got a loophole here <laughs> she didn't tell me to burn those <laughs> I don't have to well, yes because they were sewn into booklets so imagine that that you Ellie have written you know between six, 1700 and 1800 poems and that you've written them all out in in good penmanship and then stacked up the pages and sewn them, you know, sort of bound them on the side with stitches. And so they they were so precious that her sister just couldn't bear to burn them. And I think they were a shock because, well, you know, Dickinson had shared her poems. I mean, her sister-in-law next door had received over 200 of Dickinson's poems over the years. No one had any idea that there were that many. (laughs) And I think for Lavinia, I mean, I gasped when I read that. And I'm sure, you know, when you're repeating it, I'm gasping again. And, and, and it was hard for Lavinia, I think, to determine what to do, because they were always so close their entire lives, which is also so wonderful to to learn about um, the relationship they had as to as to what to do in that situation. And I wondered what you thought of it, you know, being a writer. Um, if that, that made sense to you, her request as to what you knew about her, and also if you think Lavinia did the right thing. Well, she was a very private person during her life. So Emily Dickinson revealed what she wanted to reveal. And so I, I think that Lavinia did the right thing. You know, the letters were personal. And, uh, you know, it, what it what it means is it, it left room open for generations of Dickinson scholars to speculate. Right, right. She gave him something to do, which was probably funny and purposeful. Aha, yes. uh-huh, she thought, right? Because that's kind of her wit. Um, you see that through the poem she sends to people. The, she sends a funny one um, to, to Austin. I send you a little antidote to the love of others. Whenever you feel yourselves enticed, cling to its admoni- ad- admonition. And it's forget-me-nots and bleeding hearts, right? There was this sly uh, humor and and playfulness throughout her correspondence. And luckily, the correspondence that she sent to others still exists. And it seems that you got a lot of your research from that. Yes. And so you can imagine other people receiving Emily Dickinson's letters 
how unusual they would be and how likely you might have been to stash them in a drawer, even though many of your other letters maybe you got rid of. And so, you know, when the poems came out, people started to, to you know, go through their files, basically, and find these things. And, and oh, uh, Dickinson's editor was uh, really, you know, kind of tenacious about finding as well. And do you have a, a favorite poem? Oh, there are so many of them. But one that I do like is just, it's a kind of generic garden poem, and it's short, so if I may. Yes, please. My garden, like the beach, denotes there be a sea. That summer, such as these, the pearls she fetches, such as me, it was hard for me to pick as well. Um, I, I think my favorite in your book that you put out was I love her. I loved her poem of the grass and hay. And I don't know if you have your book with you, but if you do and you would, it's on page one twenty one. Absolutely, actually, that's one of my favorites too. Because you can imagine Dickinson looking across the street to this meadow that her father owned, and it was hayed several times a year. That Dickinson had livestock, there was a barn right behind the house. And so here it goes. The grass so little has to do, a sphere of simple green with only butterflies to brood and bees to entertain and stir all day to pretty tunes the breezes fetch along and hold the sunshine in its lap and bow to everything and thread the dews all night like pearl and make itself so fine a duchess were too common for such a noticing. And even when it die, to pass in odors so divine as lowly spices gone to sleep or spikenards perishing, and then to dwell in sovereign barns and dream the days away, the grass so little has to do. I wish I were a hay. It's so good. And it's so uh, simple and complex at the same time. And and what moved me so much was, and I, I think it's also the way that you introduced it in the book, was putting in the visual of her nieces and nephews excitedly waiting for the hay to be all built up so they could jump in it off of the rafters. Right. So the, the, the physical reality of the daily happenings of the world, um, and then connected with the spiritual or heavenly aspects of the magic in, in nature and, and in existence. Like it just is, it's just so good. Well, and who would think to, to, you know, sort of weave in royalty, right? She weaves into this idea of, hey, in a field of, you know, of grasses turning into hay, being like a duchess. <laughs> you know, the grass kind of bowing to the duchess is just wonderful. Yeah, yeah, and the transformation and the different, the the different stages of the grass and its relevance um, in all of its stages and and purpose. Yeah, this is so good. And so as and then she, oh yeah, uh-huh. she winds up again with one of these things where she is taking a pose. So here she says, I wish I were a hay, 
right? In the poem, um, My Garden Like the Beach, she's saying she's like a, a pearl or maybe a flower. You know, your gar- if your garden's like a beach, then are the pearls that the, the sea is fetching, is that, are, that the, are those the flowers? Are the flowers poems? You know, there are all these levels that you can read her poems at. But if you are a gardener, you can also just read them as garden poems. You know, there's no right or wrong way to read a poem. So as a gardener and as a, a master gardener and, and prolific writer, what do you see and experience as the parallels in those two activities? Well, in a garden, your task is to try to keep things alive. And depending on your, um, your motivation, it might be to nourish, right? You might be growing something for food, or it might be for beauty or delight. You love flowers, you want a beautiful place, or it might be some combination of those. And I think for poems, it's, it's very much the same, right? You have these, you know, these things that you put in, you put in words, you put in structure, and you put them together and you want to create something that has both nourishment, but also that has some delight and some beauty and some emotion. She, in a letter to Mary Bowl, says, I've got a geranium like a sultana, and when the hummingbirds come down, geranium and I shut our eyes and go far away. So just again, the illustration of the... Oh, it's just like the God in the experience. And then her physical connection and relation to what's happening, her her ability to, that's what I talked about intimacy earlier, the intimacy that she experiences with nature. It's so unique and so profound. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's a very deep connection. You say, this is someone who experienced very deep feelings and, you know, sort of psychological feelings, but I think also very physical feelings, you know, that you close your eyes. Journey might close our eyes and go far away, right? There is something really almost erotic about that sentence um, that is, it's a very deep touching thing. And and as are a number of her poems, you you can feel that the deepness and the eroticism um, in a number of the lines, which to many might be surprising again, thinking of her in the white dress and as a recluse, which (laughs) absolutely a big circle with a red line across that not that's not who she was. Um, And you talk about the deepness, it's also in her, her relationships with her friends. Um, she says in, in one of her, uh, letters is not an absent friend as mysterious as a bulb in the ground and is not a bulb, the most captivating floral form. Yes. So think of a bulb, right? A bulb is this sort of package that is full of energy and life. And yet it's covered often in either sort of these scales or this kind of papery brown covering. It's, it's very unobtrusive, but you put it in the ground and 
what does it create? You know, it might be a lily. She, he wrote to a friend once, I've long been a lunatic on poems. You know, though, though lunacy on any theme is better untitled, right? So don't tell anyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this should be our secret. Uh, again, very playful and, and, uh, and very kind of out there. And captivated, right? Like I think of the passion that she experiences and the level of connection that I, I envy. Um, she, she, even with the plants at one point, uh, I think it's her brother's giving her a hard time for being away and, and she's a bit sad. And, and she says, as for my sweet flowers, I shall know each leaf and every bud that bursts while I am from, ha- from home. Um, so that she is living this extremely, extraordinarily connected life. Yeah, but I don't think it was easy to be Emily Dickinson. And I don't think it was easy to be one of her friends. I think, you know, you had to be a very special kind of person. So Thomas Wentworth Higginson meets her, and then later that night he writes his wife, and he said, I've never been so exhausted from a conversation with anyone. You know, it's this one-hour conversation with this this woman in a parlor in Amherst, Massachusetts. Yeah, and he's like, his power was drained. It was so interesting. <laughs> I, I thought about that for quite a bit. I couldn't sort it out um, exactly what he meant, but it was striking. Yeah, but you can imagine her being like this very high-powered, high-wattage bulb and like sort of draining all the electricity out. <laughs> So there was also in, in the time, I mean, flowers had a very different um, place. I mean, there's a, there's a little bit left over of it. Um, but there it really was so much an aspect of home decoration and tradition and livelihood. And flowers were used, uh, you know, specific flowers. There was a language used, which type of flowers you put on a grave, which type of flowers you gave to someone, um, had a language of his own. Was that something that you were aware of before you began the, the researcher? Is it something that, that you, um, came to know better? Well, I certainly knew of the Victorian language of flowers, but I spent a lot of time with it. Um, while I was working on Dickinson's poems, trying to connect her poems and the flowers she uses to kind of specific messages. And I could never come to a conclusion, Ellie. I just, I felt like there was something there. She really did feel that, you know, as she once said, flowers without lips have language. But I don't think she was looking things up in a floral dictionary and really, you know, using them in that sense. you know, I can, maybe I'll be proven wrong someday that someone will come up with another scrap of paper where it's clear that she was, but no, I I'm think, not sure. I, I don't no, think I so. think you're, you're right. And I think it's clear because from the way she describes them, she is seeing them and they are speaking to her and she's not just seeing their beauty or their color. She's seeing their communication. And I think she talks about it um, with, I think it's the, the pansy, um, and, and that she looks at it and says, um, 
the, she used these qualities in her poetry and in her action with friends. You know, she chose the appropriate flower. And, and with the pansy, she says, thus a pansy is, is pensive with its flowers that look like faces, faces that invite contemplation. And the pansy is also called heart's ease. So there is a whole language, not, I think, as you say, of the, the traditional Victorian language of flowers, but one that she has observed and feels exists on its own. Yes, and, and she was very interested in language and words. So, you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised, for example, that she knew that the word pansy was from French, pensée, which means to think, you know, that, and that she would twist that and play with it. You know, the way she would sometimes call, she'd be talking about the sun in a poem, and she'd call it an inflorescence. You know, she'd use a botanical floral term um, just partly because it's very graphic, right? The the sun does sort of look like a flower. And also that she probably loved the word inflorescence and tried to find a way to use it. Yeah, I love the the idea, like the spider web that she sees in her mind of all the connectedness of all the aspects that she's passionate about. So another one of those that I that I learned from you uh, was the dog days of summer. I had had no idea that this was was named after a flower. <laughs> well, you know, it's for me. It's one of the great joys of this kind of research is that I can sort of pull on little threads. I always feel like I've got this this kind of fabric that I'm making, this kind of a quilt, right? Because in this, I was using pieces of her letters and her poems and kind of quilting them together. But then sometimes like I'll pull on separate threads. And there was one the other day and it didn't, you know, I think this is after my book is all written and it's in print. And I thought, oh dear, you know, here's another one. This would have been so much fun to put in because she wrote a poem about the frost. Now, have, have you had frost out by you already? We have. We have. So we're just waiting for our first, re- we've had frost, but not a total hard frost. But she writes a poem called A Visitor in Marl, M-A-R-L. Now I have read this poem a hundred times. And I just always read over the word Marl, thinking she's talking about marble, marble. And then the other day, I thought, you know what, I think I'll look that up. Well, it turns out that marl is a bluish-white soft stone that's mined like Uh. lime. And it's very high in lime. And in the 19th century, it was very popular as a soil amendment for farmers, right? So they'd they'd put this marl on their fields in powdered form. And you can imagine Dickinson, you know, in Amherst, she'd see this all over because it was just a farm town. And um, and then I, I went on and I thought, Marl, Marl, Marl. And then Marlboro, there's a Marlboro in my state, Marlboro, New Jersey. And it turns out, yes, that is where they mined Marl. Uh. And so that's what I mean. And, mm-hmm. But the poem goes like this. A visitor in Marl who influences flowers till they are orderly as busts and elegant as glass who visits in the night and just before the sun concludes his glistening interview caresses and is gone but whom his fingers have touched and where his feet have run and whatsoever mouth he kissed 
is as it had not been. Now, what a poem about Frost. <sighs> and what a book. I've got to say, it, it, you know, I, as you, you know, you say you've read that poem a hundred times. And, and as I was reading through, through your book, I was reading the poems in such a different way than I've ever read them before. Um, so I just want to say thank you from the depths of my heart. Um, I now feel like I am, um, on, on one of the insiders of, of the Emily Dickinson Club and, and allowing, um, her, her and, and, to play, you know, that, that I feel like, okay, now, now we're, I'm not reading her poem. Now she and I are playing and it's, it's fantastic. So thank you. That's a terrific compliment, Ellie. You can't imagine. All right. Well, thank you so much, Marta. A fantastic book. Um, Emily Dickinson, it's Gardening Life, The Plants and Places That Inspired the Iconic Poet. And I can't wait till your next book to have you on the show again. And see what I'm going to learn about, learn about then and, and get me thinking, because you definitely did get me thinking. So thank you. Thank you. Okay, I want to ask you one thing, though, before before I hang up. Um, julep. That was another thing you say. Her mother was, was fonder of julep food. And I was like, okay, I have to ask Marta, what is julep food? I, I think, and again, that's one I should probably look up. But I assume she means uh, something sweet. And um, very well mashed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Marta. It's so great to talk to you. Thanks, Ellie. Okay. Be well. Okay. Bye-bye. You too. Bye.